Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Lawson. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Julian Treadwell, who is a GP and doctoral research fellow at the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences, uh, and that's at Oxford University. Um, research has shown that doctors, including GPs, have a generally, you know, a poor knowledge of quantitative benefits and harms of treatments. Julian's paper is titled GP's Use and Understanding of the Benefits and Harms of Treatments for Long-Term Conditions, a Qualitative Interview Study. I started by asking us to tell us a little bit more about what that title means and what this paper is all about. Yes, it's a good, a good question to start with. And I apologise for the nerdy title. Uh, and this is really about something that's all recognising as, as a fairly sort of understandable issue, I think. Um, first of all, long-term conditions, what are we talking about? I guess this means things like diabetes, asthma, hypertension, osteoporosis, all that stuff. Uh, these conditions which we see every day and for which we prescribe often lifelong medication to tens of millions of people. And that's a practice that's been driven over most of my career by guidelines and then in parts by the quality and outcomes framework. And we all spend a lot of our time managing and prescribing for these conditions. And the quantitative information about the benefits and harms of treatments. So this is basically about numbers needed to treat and absolute risk reduction and all that stuff. And the origins of this research came from my own practice. I've been a GP for over 20 years now. And a few years ago, having been enthusiastically following guidelines and managing long-term conditions and prescribing preventive drugs, I began to feel increasingly uncomfortable about polypharmacy and wondering how valuable all the stuff we were doing was. Let me jump in there, Julian, and ask you, I mean, you've done some incredible work over the, over the years, and when you've dug into that back end, and it's been absolutely fascinating to read your articles on this and to hear you speak at conferences, because so few of us do understand and appreciate the full scope of the numbers and that quantitative information, and never mind getting it across to patients. So it's a really fascinating kind of position. So I guess this research here was exploring a little bit more about if other GPs felt the same when it came to talking to patients about NNTs and absolute risk reductions. You spoke to a number of GPs as part of this research. Perhaps you could give us a give us a bit of an indication of how you came about to how you came about doing that and what you found. Yeah, so um, it's built on um, a paper we published last year as well, which was just an online survey of GPs. And we asked over a few hundred GPs what they would guess or estimate the risk reductions for a range of treatments to be across a range of long-term conditions. And unsurprisingly, uh, we as GPs turned out not to be very confident about that. And the estimates or guesses we carry around in our head were often you know, widely inaccurate, quite, quite big margins of um, difference away from the real answers and this is something I'd experienced from my own knowledge. So and this sort of knowledge deficit has been shown in other doctors as well and specialists and in GPs in other countries. So it's not just us as British GPs who mustn't you know, uh, feel too guilty or um, uh, um, feel we're to blame about this. Um, and so this was following it up, really, with trying to find out how we're all thinking about it. So once we've established there's a knowledge deficit, what's really going on? And it was part of a bigger project 
to develop an information resource for GPs to use to give us this kind of information. So what we did was um, go out and talk to 15 GPs across the country, Scotland and Wales included, uh, and spoke to a really diverse range of people and found a lot of interesting stuff. So I suppose the first thing that came out was the kind of good news aspect is, are people using quantitative information about treatments at all and, and do they like using it and how do they feel about it? And people could give some examples of where they use this sort of information in consultations, usually around statin prescribing and being able to talk to people about this will reduce your risk of a heart attack or stroke over the next 10 years by this much. And people seem to be pleased to be using that information and find it useful. Uh, and then there was another aspect of the use of quantitative information, which is a little bit softer, perhaps. So things like people using key risks to figure out people's baseline risk and using that to frame conversations or make treatment threshold decisions, but not really being aware of what happened to that baseline risk with treatment. You mentioned the statins, and I noticed that in the paper, that that, that was one of the, the one areas where doctors, GPs felt confident. And, and just parenthetically, I, should, I would probably say, I, I presume the literature shows it's not just GPs, of course. I imagine all doctors across all specialities probably suffer from some extent with this difficulty with quantitative information, but you can perhaps answer that in a moment. But when people don't have the numbers, what kind of mechanisms do they use? You mentioned, started mentioning some of them there. Mm. What kind, of, what kind of mechanisms do they use to help people make and help patients make decisions in the absence of the, that quantitative information? Yes, this was fascinating. So the first thing was that there is still a, a palpable desire among the GPs to personalise care and try and share decisions as best they can, which is really nice to hear. And they were using all sorts of different things, knowledge of their own patients' characteristics and preferences. So how does my patient feel about drugs in general? Do they tend to get side effects? Do they feel like an overall high-risk person? Have they got lots of comorbidities? What's the treatment burden like? All that sort of stuff. Um, also thinking about physiological mechanisms and um, making logical decisions around that. So one example was somebody thinking about treating hypertension with a thiazide and somebody gout and what were the pros and cons of that sort of thing. Um, and also using bits of information and heuristics that they've picked up along the course of their career. So um, you know, knowing that uh, anticoagulating high-risk people in AF was a good thing to do or um, that sort of thing, but without having actual numbers at their fingertips. Yeah. Um, so there's a real sense of people wanting to personalise treatment, wanting to share decisions, but then also being aware that they didn't have this information about quantitative benefits and feeling a bit handicapped by that. So overall, what, what would you say the GP's views were on using it more in the future? I think you mentioned in the paper there are some positives but, and some negatives as well. So we have to be careful about assuming that perhaps we're going to get on and discuss how we might have more of them in the future, but not necessarily all GPs were entirely positive in all aspects about that. Yes, absolutely. They, so well, actually all the GPs were keen with the th about theoretical idea of if I had some easily accessible information about the chance of treatment benefits and harms, that would be really useful and I think I'd like to use it in my practice 
in certain places. So that, um, everyone liked that idea, but there were lots of um, barriers and concerns that people would think about, which um, we might be able to imagine. So the first was getting the information and being able to understand it. So one of the reasons this problem exists is that the information is really hard to find. You've got to go digging around and back end of guidelines and reading original papers or trawling the internet, and it takes hours and days. I tell you, having been doing a lot of that <laughs> over the last couple of years. Um, and it's also difficult to understand, and GPs were also feeling generally not confident about statistical terminology. They were taught it once in medical school, like we all were, but it's just fallen out of use because that's not the, the part of our daily working life. So there's an information need and a, an ability to understand it. There's also the ever-present challenges of time and consultations and whether it's even feasible to introduce another element into discussions. Issues around whether patients want this information. Do they or don't they, or do they want their doctors to make the decision for them? If they do want this information, how do you communicate it? And all that stuff. So it's a tricky problem, and it sits in the middle of all the complexity of general practice that we know and understand so well. Yeah. And one thing I have to congratulate you on with this paper is getting the word satisficing in as well. It's a portmanteau, I think, of uh, satis satisfying or satisfying and um, sufficing, um, I believe. And it's usually, I think it's been, it's, it's in the choice literature, isn't it? It's around, it's where it's come from originally, that kind of, the paradox of choice. Um, and I can't remember who that was who wrote about that at the time, but I've looked at it in the past. But it's um, it's that kind of strategy that GPs employ that we're all, we're so good at, which is just sort of taking the facts that you have and just actually managing with those other heuristics and hunches and just kind of negotiating that compromise. Um, it's a really, uh, so I'm being slightly facetious about you mentioning it in the paper, but I think it's a really important point. And that's how many ways how we're all getting on at the moment, but there is some scope for change. So what kind of things do you think we need to do differently, Julian here, or what we could do differently? What's the, what's the way forward? Well, I think you point to a really important part of this. I, I don't think there's going to be a prescriptive, solution to all this. Anything that's going to come into real-world practice has got to exist in that environment where we're all doing the best we can, we're satisficing and bringing together as many bits of information that we have as we are able to and as we wish to um, with a patient. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, this is part of a bigger project to design an information resource for GPs. And this is an idea I had, you know, several years ago now, which was, wouldn't it be great if this was just easily available online? And one question about that is, how do you make this complicated information usable? And the second question is, once it's there, how do you fit it into normal practice and how do we handle it? And so the first part of that is, making it accessible and understandable. And um, so the, the project, which this is part of, uh, we are building a website for GPs to use. And we've, from the very beginning, used co-design uh, and research design methods to try and get it right. Uh, and one of the problems with medical information is that it's often very top-down and scientific-looking and just too difficult. So we've... Um, work with patients and groups of GPs to actually design how the information looks, how it's presented using 
infographics and bits of information in easily clickable ways and hopefully in a way that fits in with our practice. Um, and we've been working with some fantastic GPs who've been co-designers on that and doing lots of user testing and, and all of that. And it's looking really great. I'm very excited about it. Any anticipated dates, Julian, that we can look forward to seeing? At, at, least, year, it's at least a year and a half, unfortunately. So probably end of 22. Yeah, yes. Mainly because we've got to uh, fill it full of information, which is another... Yes, of course, and I and I remember from your, as I mentioned earlier, the work in the past was the, the it was very clear when you give those presentations or you've written about it in the past that the amount of work to dig out the the the, the facts that you use, you, as you say, you normally have to go back to the original literature. It was just it was it was really quite um, startling, clearly how much work had gone into that. And as yeah. you mentioned at the end of this paper as well, there, there, the, the original literature is not without its limitations of course in all sorts of ways yes it's really it's i mean it's fascinating now going through the process of digging uh, so it's mainly built on the evidence reviews behind nice guidelines and also drawing on Cochrane and other systematic reviews and trials that as and when needed but it's been really fascinating trying to write content that's relevant to practice and realizing that the research often doesn't give you much of an answer or it gives you an answer about a particular population in a particular set of trials, and you've got to think very hard about how relevant that is to the people we see in primary care. Uh, and particularly finding information about treatment harms and side effects, which is actually in our um, patient and public involvement work came through very strongly as patients' priority. They're, they're much more interested in the risk of side effects and harms than they are in the uh, chance of benefit, fascinatingly. Yeah, not getting reported well enough in papers, perhaps. That's an interesting yes. point. Just just to wrap up, Julian, if you had this is um, if you had a, just a, one or two pointers for GPs who want to make better use of numbers in their consultations, what kind of what would be your what would be a tip or two you might give them at this point? We're obviously waiting for the website, and hopefully that'll be an incredibly useful resource in the future. What any any particular advice right at the moment? In terms of finding information, um, it is hard. But the quickest things to look off from. Or our patient decision aids, which give which are targeted at patients, but give people numerical information. And there's a collection of those on patient.co.uk. Nice have a shared decision aids collection. If you just Google nice shared decision aids, or if you just put a condition into Google, um, you know, osteoarthritis shared decision aid, that's the fastest way of getting this sort of information I found. If you want to get a little bit more nerdy. Uh, Cochrane reviews are pretty good, and they the modern the ones over the last few years have a summary of findings table, where they they give a scientific looking but fairly brief summary of numbers of, of treatment benefits and highs and those. So that's where I start. And in terms of consultation skills, there are two really nice resources that have come out over the last few years. One is accompanies the nice shared decision-making guideline that came out last month. There's a big, fantastic educational package with that four-hour e-learning module. And the Royal College of GPs have got a um, communicating risk uh, learning module on their website too. They're both great to look at. Julian, that is incredibly helpful. Julian, we will um, we'll have to stop there. I would encourage everybody to have a read of your paper, and also we'll um, we'll try and get links where we can to those resources so that people can find those easily. Thank you very much. Terrific. Thanks. It's been great talking to you. 
Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again.